Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel uh, Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 167 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 8, Coasting Uphill. Last time we left off, Apollo 8 was coasting moonward, and everything inside it, including the three astronauts, was weightless. This was the translunar coast phase of the mission. During this phase, mission control would stay in continuous communication with the crew. William Anders climbed out of his spacesuit and found a freedom unlike any he had ever experienced. Wearing only a pair of beta cloth coveralls over his long johns, he floated unencumbered. With a push of a fingertip against his couch, he propelled himself slowly past the instrument panel into the lower equipment bay. There, he found enough room to stretch out or to hang inverted with his feet up by the top hatch and his head pointing at the floor. In the lower equipment bay, Anders had enough space to tuck his body into a ball. A nudge against the wall sent him tumbling like an acrobat, magically suspended at the top of his arc. It would have been great fun, but for one thing, it was making him ill. Suddenly, in the midst of his aerobatics, Anders felt a wave of nausea come over him. For years, the NASA doctors had worried about the motion sickness in space, fearing that zero-g would confuse the inner ear, which gives the body a sense of up and down. But no astronaut had ever returned from orbit with anything but glowing enthusiasm for weightlessness. Borman and Lovell had spent two weeks in zero-g with no ill effects, but the command module had something that Jiminy didn't. Room to move. The only thing Anders knew was that he needed to be still for a while, but soon he did feel better. Now I want to say a quick word about Waste Management on the Apollo For urine collection, there was a hose with a condom-like fitting at one end which led, by way of a valve, to a vent on the side of the spacecraft. To use this, you roll on the condom 
open the valve, and it all goes into the void where it freezes into droplets of ice that are iridescent in the sunlight. One astronaut was asked what the most beautiful sight he saw in space. His answer was, urine dump at sunset. But the urine collector didn't work so well. For one thing, it could be painful. If you open the valve too soon, some part of the mechanism was liable to poke you in the end of your penis, which tended to prevent you from urinating. And at that point, as if to confirm your worst fears, the suction began to pull you in. Now you were being jabbed and pulled at the same time, so you shut off the valve, and as the mechanism resealed itself, it caught a little piece of you in it. It only took one time like that to convince you not to let it happen again. Next time, you had a strategy. Start flowing a split second before you turn the valve. But once you begin the urination, the condom sometimes popped off, and out came a flurry of little golden droplets floating around and making your misfortune everyone's misfortune. And, of course, don't forget about the smell. The other part of the waste management system was tucked away in the storage locker. It was a supply of special plastic bags, each of which resembled a top hat with an adhesive coating on the brim. Each bag had a kind of finger-shaped pocket built into the side of it. When the call came, you had to flypaper this thing to your behind, and then you were supposed to reach in there with your finger. After all, nothing falls without gravity. After that, you had it in the bag, so to speak. There was one last task. Break open a capsule of blue germicide, seal it up in the bag, and knead the contents to make sure they were fully mixed. At best, the whole operation was an ordeal. In the confined space of the command module, your crewmates suffered too. One of the Apollo 7 astronauts said the smell was so bad it woke him up out of a deep sleep. When Sheral's crew came back, they wrote a memo about it. Quote, Get naked. Allow an hour. Have plenty of tissues handy. End quote. Anders saw the memo and heard the stories, and before the mission, he decided he was going to do everything in his power to avoid it. The food on Apollo 8 was specially formulated to produce as little residue as possible, but Anders wasn't taking any chances. He started his own low-residue diet a few days before launch. Six days was a long time, but he was determined he'd go all the way to the moon and back if he had to. Continuing on with the mission. At T plus 14 hours, Apollo 8 was a third of the way to the moon, 
But even as Borman, Lovell, and Anders sped moonward, the earth tried to pull them back, slowing their flight. It was as if they were coasting up a hill, one that became less and less steep as it went along. About two days from the present, on the afternoon of December 23rd, Apollo 8 would reach the crest of that hill, the place where the Earth's gravitational influence gave way to the Moon's gravitational influence. From then on, Apollo 8 would begin falling toward its destination. For now, though, there was no sense of speed, or for that matter, any normal sense of time. To Borman's crew, time was told by the mission clock on the instrument panel. Their wristwatches were still set at Houston time, but all other vestiges of day and night had vanished. To keep the sun's heat and frigid cold of space evenly distributed on the hull, Borman had set the spacecraft rotating slowly on its axis, making one full turn in an hour. The astronauts had nicknamed this the barbecue mode. Every once in a while, as the craft turned, the men caught sight of the Earth. With each passing hour, it dwindled. They couldn't see the change as they watched, but as they turned away from it and looked again later, they noticed that it was a little smaller and more distant. At T plus 18 hours, Borman awoke after about five hours of fitful sleep. He didn't feel good. He told Lovell and Anders he had a headache and took a couple of aspirin. Then he just floated in his couch and watched the instrument panel. A few minutes went by, and the next thing Lovell and Anders knew, Borman was retching. Anders handed him a plastic bag, and Borman went down into the lower equipment bay and threw up. Borman was motion sick. The episode was beginning to make Anders feel a bit sick himself, when suddenly he spotted a greenish sphere about the size of a tennis ball, ascending slowly out of the equipment bay in a flurry of tiny bits and globs. The sight of it made him want to gag, but when it drifted closer, he noticed that the blob was shimmering and pulsating in three directions at once in some kind of complex fluid vibration made possible in zero gravity. At that moment, the scientist in him took over. He was about to go for a camera when suddenly the blob split in two the twin globs headed away from each other in exactly opposite directions. One moved from where it came, and the other headed right for Jim Lovell. The blob hit him on the chest, and then, overcome by the forces of surface tension, spread out on his coveralls like a fried egg. By now... A horrible stench had rolled out of the equipment bay. Anders left Lovell to his predicament and reached for an oxygen bottle on the wall of the cabin, meant to be used in case there was a fire. Anders slapped the mask on his face and turned it on full. Meanwhile, Borman's troubles weren't over. Now, 
he was stuck with diarrhea. What a mess! Lovell and Anders had to help chase down stray bits of vomit and feces with paper towels. Every now and then, a residual bit of vomit drifted by. Here is the clip of the astronauts recalling this uh, incident made in 2013. Well, the, uh, the thing that we might, since you probably are, I hope you're interested in, in hearing a little bit about the fight with too, but the, uh, the launch was exciting. And then we went on to the coast. Uh, we went around once and a half around the Earth. And then over, it was over Hawaii, wasn't it? We got the go for TLI, much uh, go for translunar injection. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't think we would ever get that because I knew darn well that NASA wouldn't commit, it, commit us unless everything was really perfect. But over Hawaii, uh, Mike Collins said, Apollo 8, you go for TLI. We lit the S-4B, started out, picked up, what, 25,000 miles an hour? 35,000 feet a second. 35,000 feet a second, 25,000 miles an hour, and uh, started toward the moon. Now, in order to keep the heat load equal on the spacecraft, we, if that was the sun, we positioned ourselves perpendicular to the sun and then just rotated all the way to the moon. We, so we, I think we probably have the record for revolutions. Yeah. Uh, and it, it barbecue kept, mode. It, yeah, we call it barbecue mode. About, oh, I don't know, about two or three. I, I might as well get this out of the way right now because it'll come up sooner or later. And it but, came up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I began to feel funny. <laughs> I'll tell you, it wasn't a bit funny. <laughs> you know, Jim Lovell and I had flown for two weeks, and I'd never gotten sick. I'd never been sick in an airplane, but I, I really wasn't feeling too good. And so I managed to throw up all over him. <laughs> and, and that caused great consternation back on Earth when Anders wanted to squeal on me. I wouldn't let him. So finally, he dumped it on the tape, and they read about it. And then he, eight hours later, I covered, <laughs> I covered his tail for eight hours. But interestingly enough, all the scientists and Dr. Van Allen was convinced that we got fried going through his ionosphere belt. This not the doctors were going nuts, and we wanted as if we, we they couldn't decide whether or not they were going to abort the mission. They didn't have much to say about it. Really. Frank, <laughs> Frank, I have to tell you this right now, but we were going to the moon regardless of what happened exactly. to you. Exactly. <laughs> That's my point. We no matter what they said, we were on our way. Right, Jim right. had broken out the rubber bag to put him in. <laughs> you know? But anyway, I got over it in a big hurry, and then we, we did that for about three days. And then uh, I'll, I'll just talk about inserting it into the moon. Well, before moment. you go there, Frank. Hey, you're, you're, Wait, we're you're, we're you're, already to the moon here, Frank. Uh, I haven't even taken off yeah, yet. We, we, we need <laughs> With, with, without, without getting into too much gory detail, uh, Jim and I were up, up in, the, uh, uh, in the operationals part. Frank was down in the navigation bay. And out of the navigation bay came this blob, kind of greenish, yellowish. And as a physicist, it intrigued me <laughs> because it had this three-dimensional <laughs> oscillation. And, and Jim was sitting over here. and. and we were both fascinated by it, you know, and, and I was thinking, God, I ought to get a picture of that, you know, and, uh, and, and then it split. Let and, me, uh, wait a minute, it's my story, and uh, it's not quite true, but it's still a good story. And, and the conservation momentum would say that when it split, you know, part would go one way, the other would part, 
So it was kind of hitting this, and one part went this way, and the other part went right towards Jim. And I'll never forget, his eyes just came in like that, like a fried egg on his chest. <laughs> you owe him one, Frank. At T-plus one day and one hour, Borman was feeling much better, blaming his illness on a 24-hour virus. Anders wanted him to reveal the incident to Mission Control, but Borman refused. Anders finally convinced his commander to put a short summary on tape. The message could be sent to Earth via a special telemetry channel. That way, no one would hear except the few managers who listened to the tape. Three hours later, Mike Collins called Apollo 8 on a special frequency. Here's the clip. This is Houston, all right? Go ahead, Houston, how do you read? Yeah, Roger, we're reading you loud and clear. Uh, we're on a uh, private loop now, and we'd like to get some amplifying details on your uh, medical problem. Frank, this is Chuck. Did uh, you read that uh, you ought to take the low motel and the marazine can be used if uh, you do get nauseated, any one of the three of you? Okay, thank you. To Borman's surprise, Dr. Chuck Berry came on the line to talk to him directly. That almost never happened. Unknown to Borman, the episode had triggered serious talk of canceling the mission. Barry worried that Borman had a virus and that it was only a matter of time before his crewmates caught it. But Borman told the earthbound flight surgeon that he felt much better and that neither Lovell nor Anders had been affected. Just a few minutes later, in consultation with Barry and other managers, Apollo Program Director Sam Phillips decided to let the flight continue. Even if Phillips had decided otherwise, Apollo 8 was too far away for a swift about-face maneuver. Borman, Lovell, and Anders were committed now. Even if they had to abort, their mission would at least go around the moon. When Apollo 8 finally reached the halfway point between the moon and the earth, the crew made their first television broadcast. Here are a few clips from that broadcast. Apollo 8, uh, Houston, uh, we just got it. You are getting it. Okay, Apollo 8, we have a good picture. Okay, we're rolling around to a uh, good view of the Earth, and uh, as soon as we get to the uh, good view of the Earth, we'll stop and let you look out the window at the scene we see. Jim Lovell's down in the lower equipment bay preparing uh, lunch, and, and, uh, and Bill is uh, holding a camera here for us both. Bill's going to take the camera down the lower equipment bay with Jim. Okay, uh, we're getting a pretty good picture, but if you'd move it a little slower every time you move it around why it breaks up on the scan. You've got everybody standing on their heads down here. Oh, has he got it turned upside down? 
got the wrong rest mat. We all have our problems. Good. Okay, now we're coming up on the view. We really want you to see us, the view of the Earth. And if you'll uh, break for just a minute, uh, Bill's going to put on the large lens. So we'll be right back with you. Okay, I got Okay, that's a, that's a real good picture. That's the best one we've had. And uh, how about just going in and leave your pictures inside until we can uh, think some more about what we can do to adjust for that light. Roger. After the telecast began, it was time to end it. Borman would now set the spacecraft back on its slow thermal control spin barbecue mode, and that meant the high-gain antenna could no longer track the Earth. Before they signed off, Lovell ducked into the picture. He wanted his mother to get a look at him because today was her 73rd birthday. Lovell looked at the camera and grinned and said, Happy birthday, Mother. At T-plus, two days, seven hours, 207,000 miles out. The Earth was so far away now that Jim Lovell could hide it behind his outstretched thumb. The feeling this evoked in the pit of his stomach was hard to convey. It was that delicious mix of exhilaration and apprehension that comes from testing yourself in dangerous conditions. When Apollo was first conceived, it was thought that the astronauts would act not only as pilots, but as onboard navigators. But that task proved to be so time-consuming, and it used up so much of the memory of the command module's computer, 
that planners decided to let the work be done by computers and mission control. Still, there had to be a backup in case Apollo 8 lost communication with the Earth. In that contingency, Lovell would use the stars to navigate with the command module's 28 power sextant. He could measure the angle between selected stars and the Earth's edge, enter the data into the computer, and let the electronic brain compute Apollo 8's location relative to the Earth and the Moon. He had already tested his skills with practice star sightings, and the results were within a few thousands of a degree of perfection. Lovell was proud of his role in the first circumlunar voyage. Here's the clip. Uh, Jim, uh, I've just been uh, looking at your, your marks with respect to uh, accuracy, and they figure they're within uh, a couple thousandths of a degree of the uh, theoretical optimum. Lovell's proficiency in navigating the spacecraft with its onboard optical instruments would eventually earn him the nickname, the man with the golden fingers. His speed was such that he would be requested to slow down so that the earthbound machines recording the data could keep up with him. The accuracy of his sightings was virtually flawless, symbolic of the entire mission, a mission so accurate that several of the planned mid-course corrections would be dropped as unnecessary. A few minutes after the second telecast ended, Borman, Lovell, and Anders passed the most significant milestone since leaving Earth, and yet they were completely unaware until Houston mentioned it. At 38,900 miles above the moon, Apollo 8 reached the top of the gravitational hill and crossed over into the lunar gravitational sphere of influence. At that moment, Apollo 8 was traveling only 2,223 miles per hour. But in mission control, Kraft's flight controllers saw the craft begin to speed up. But the astronauts felt nothing. They saw no change in the visible universe. Outside, there was the same dull, starless black. To Anders, the lack of tangible milestones made the voyage seem even longer. At one point, Capcom Jerry Carr asked what they could see, and Anders replied, Nothing. It's like being in the inside of a submarine. The moon itself was nowhere to be seen. Anders had looked forward to watching it grow even larger as they closed in until it became a huge cratered ball in the sky but he had not seen the moon once on the whole trip out, not even a glimpse. Because of Apollo 8's angle of approach, the moon was lost in the sun's glare. It was really an act of faith for Anders even to convince himself that when the spacecraft arrived, that the moon would really be there. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage, 
spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.